Hi listeners, it's Risa dropping in, and for the month of August, we're playing some episodes from the Visible Voices archives. August is Civic Health Month. It's a time to showcase the link between voting and health and celebrate efforts that ensure each and every voter has the opportunity to support their community's health at the ballot box. The reality is that 80% of health outcomes are determined by non-clinical factors, such as access to food and access to affordable housing. The Visible Voices podcast and Vote ER invite you to celebrate with us this upcoming August. Commit to action during the fourth annual Civic Health Month or join the free virtual Civic Health Conference. Let's get to the episode. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. Today, I'm in conversation with the MedEd emergency medicine rock star, Dr. Michelle Lin. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Alium. ALIEM is an acronym that stands for Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. She's also a professor of emergency medicine and a digital innovation lab director at UCSF. That's University of California, San Francisco. Michelle's going to tell us all about ALIEM, her growth mindset, books, leadership, and more. So let me just back up and say in 2009, she started by writing a series of blog posts under the category of Tricks of the Trade. These were helping physicians, clinicians, navigate the emergency department to take better care of patients. These blogs grew to an education platform, a platform that now has over 100 volunteer members globally. Their goal, Alium's goal, is to be the virtual Silicon Valley for health professions education. Let's get to the conversation. When we started the episode, you actually were talking about the one pet peeve, which underlies your motivation, um, your building of ALIEM, which is academic life and emergency medicine. For audience members that may not be familiar, um, can you cross the T, jot the I about how that one thing for you has been ALIEM? Yeah, it's it's my baby. I think it's prefaced by the fact that, you know, I started my career in 2001. And I, like many people in medicine, are on this hamster wheel of college, go pre-med, go residency, go straight into like practice. And a lot of us in academia publish funding, you know, let's do these titles and move your way up. It is a somewhat of a linear path. And in 2009 through, you know, no one single thing broke the camel's back, but it's just the load, the workload, the politics, uh, me trying to convince group A to do group B things, even though I agreed with group B, it's a whole, everything put together. I just said, you know what? I've had enough of this. I've had enough of these titles. They're great and all, even though I'd had so much professional identity tied to them. And that was probably the hardest part. Everyone just goes, oh, Michelle's an academic emergency physician who loves to teach. I can't believe she's giving all this stuff up. And, you know, I came to that point, like I have to put the big hard stop on and I just dropped all of my responsibilities and just became a clinician. You know, I worked in the ER full time for a little while and just sat myself down and said, what exactly do I want? What am I doing here? If everything is on the table now, like I don't have to worry about what my titles are telling me to do. What do I want? And I struggled with that for a long, long time. And a long time for us emergency physicians is like two months, <laughs> a long, long time. And, you know, I, I tried to learn a lot of things about digital platforms, 
other avenues, other ways to do teaching. I tried to become a digital Swiss army life or army knife so that I was like, well, if I figure out all the tools there are to deliver education, maybe I can match the education with the right tool. Because if you're only a textbook writer, that's going to be your solution to everything in education. Just write more books. But And that's where I came upon this idea of blogs. I go, why can anyone create websites for teaching that is public to the world? This is insane. And, and this is really before the digital information overload really took full swing with Twitter. But I go, why can't, why can't I do it? Why can't I put my lecture notes up there? I, I want to search for it on my own using Google search. And, you know, five minutes later, I created a website and I didn't tell anybody for many months except for my parents. And so there's constantly this readership of three every day, me and my parents and me and my parents. And, and over time of about two months after that, it started to grow to a hundred people, a thousand people. And I started putting kind of behind the scenes about what it's like to be an educator in medicine. And then I started creating uh, expert content about emergency medicine. Tricks of the trade is really what I'm known for about how do you find alternative tools to fix solutions when you don't have the primary tools available so that the patient care goes smoothly or as smooth as possible, given the constraints. So given that, that's where the blog or Alium it's a blog-based organization, I would like to say, kind of stemmed from there. And from there, we then just layered on different boxes on top of the foundation of, ooh, what other cool projects can we do in education in this social media space? So I feel so lucky that we're getting a little bit of the um, inside scoop and the story behind the story of Alium. So, so continue us now on this story of Alium. Well, can I make a point of clarification first, which is, you know, I am not making a ton of money off of this. I don't want to imply that. It's just that if I'm not going to be paid doing education under an institution, I might as well be not paid under myself, where I have full autonomy of what I want to do and what I think is important. So that's the clarification, uh, which is also a, store, a sore sticking point for those of us in this space of blogging and podcasting is sustainability. Separate, separate issue. But just to continue along the story of Alium, um, you know, the initial focus was on learners, the end users. Who can I help deliver free education to? And that was super rewarding. I got great feedback and all. But then I shifted towards, well, there's a lot of people doing great work in this space. I don't need to be the person leading the charge nor taking the bulk of the work. Can we pivot using our existing audience and existing trust network to then create something new? Like what have organizations not done before that I've always wanted to see done? And, and one of those is in creating virtual communities of practice. I don't think people do that well. I don't really do it that well, but I think better than others. And that is the idea that, especially with COVID now, bringing into the limelight of what can we create virtually? That is worthwhile and valuable to join. And so pre-COVID, about uh, 10 years ago, we created what are called incubators. And the first one we built was called the Chief Resident Incubator. And for those of you unfamiliar with the way residency programs work is that every year, two to four senior residents get selected to be chief residents, kind of uh, early rising leaders in emergency medicine and in the healthcare space. However, how do they get trained to do this? Well, they get one or two fewer shifts a month and they do some schedules for the residents. And then every time I saw that, I go, there is 
no leadership development in this. And they and if they do, it's in that one institution and the other 240 plus residency programs are doing their own thing. And says, why? I don't understand, but the skill set should be this somewhat similar. Why don't we create a community where we bring in all these experts and teach them key develop uh, leadership development skills that they would all need pretty universally? And so they joined for a whole year. I couldn't believe it. In our first year, we had almost, what, 70% of all the resident programs just joined this brand new thing that just came up from the ashes. And they're like, sure, we'll join. And we, and we actually charged money for this. That was our... Uh, one experiment of like, will they actually pay for this experience? And and turns out they do, and turns out programs do. And, and so we really had a wonderful time developing communities like that, which then have sprung board other things like the faculty incubator, which is now developing uh, more senior advanced educator scholars in our space so that we can do teaching in a more scholarly uh, way. Yeah. And um, can you Share with the audience the extent, the reach of these incubators, the chief resident, as well as the faculty in terms of specialty, in terms of countries. Yeah, well, the chief resident incubator was really only focused on emergency medicine because we wanted to build some constraints in there and some degree of community because I think emergency medicine chief residents have different uh, problems and different needs compared to, let's say, a surgery chief resident. So we tried to build a very closed community. Uh, other Outside of that, faculty incubator is really kind of cool, actually. We thought we would start with just emergency medicine educators, but then we had some people from Africa, East Asia, uh, the Department of Anatomy. We're like, really? And But you know what? Education is education, and scholarship of education is the scholarship of education. So we welcome them all, and we limit it to 30 people because it's a very tight a pretty intense, almost master degree level of just here's your reading material. Here's what we got to do. Let's, uh, and to quote uh, one of your guests, Seth Godin is like, we build something and we ship it. We build something and we ship it. So there's a degree of just, let's just build some products. So you understand what it's like to be a productive educator. Yeah. Going back to the charging to participate, have you found, do you think people do value something differently when they have to pay for it versus it's given for free? Oh, that is really interesting. The psychology of charging for things. I do. I do. But then there is such a huge barrier between between free and even if it's $5. So the question I have to decide from a philosophical standpoint is, am I willing to perhaps have 50% less participants because they just don't want it that $5 charge versus uh, have a, a, a broader reach where presumably they'll find value out of something in that freedom of it. So I balance that between the two. The blog has always been free. Our learning management systems have always been free. But now we are toying with these little pockets of uh, maybe we do charge for a few things, kind of like the Khan Academy. Have you seen that? Everything there is free, but they have some tutoring and some some one-on-one coaching. Those things are charged. And so we're trying to use a similar model. Uh, when we were preparing for this episode, I sent you some questions to think about ahead of time. And vis-a-vis Alien, it's not just medical education. It's not just a medical education platform. I would describe it as an enterprise. So there's education and there's business. Like you have a few hats 
you've worn that you kind of put on top of each other and maybe you swap out, you know, what part do you consider educator and what part do you consider business person in building this? Uh, when I first started, it was all just purely education because my definition of success was I found value out of it. So I really didn't need a business model. But once you start getting into uh, bigger reaches, you're like, wow, I think people are finding some value out of this. I don't want to disappoint them. It got a little bit more higher stakes. Then that's where I flipped into really revving up my my reading habits. Uh, you've been having reading habits for a long time. But that around then, I'm like, oh, man, I need to really figure out this whole businessy thing going on. Uh, and so, you know, I read books about one that really resonated with me was called... Uh, what the speed of trust uh, by Stephen Covey. I go, really? Speed of trust? That sounds kind of hokey. I read it anyway. And I said, holy moly, this is the way teams should be built. Because there's this really great quote I have uh, written down in my room, which says, innovation moves at the speed of trust. That is amazing. And, and it's a full testament to what we've been building here is, you know, I trust my teammates to make the right decisions and go with it. Even if it's crazy, you have the backing of a trusted platform with a big audience. Let's let's test out this model because the way education has been done clearly hasn't been working. So let's try something different. And if it fails, it fails. But, you know, we have very low stakes on our end, but at least we will have tried. Enter book two, and Risa writes down the title of a book she needs to read. Um <laughs> We deviated from you giving us our, can you give, give the, uh, me and the audience another book? Oh, yes. Uh, okay, so here's the speed of trust one that you need to get. Uh, oh, here's a classic one. It is great for, as a graduation present because it's not that expensive and it's adorable. It's called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon, and it has his 10 tenets of how to be a great artist and not artist as in painting, sculpting, but as a creative. And I think all of us, whether you know it or not, are creatives. You're building things, you're collaborating, you're at intersections of different groups with new ideas. And this is the age of the creative. So why not get this book? And there are so many things on there that he totally called that um, really were highlighted by COVID. And one of them was, uh, what is it? Geography is no longer our master, right? We can totally get things done. My alien team, there are still people I have not met in 10 years in person. <laughs> we are working from all around the world and having a blast at it. And so geography is not our master. You can steal like an artist. And the idea is that ideas are everywhere, but you can apply different ideas from different sectors into what you're doing. You there, there are no more original ideas out there. It's about how you mesh things together. So steal like an artist. So audience members now are like, okay, let me log on to this website, uh, Alien. Walk them through what they'll see. What are the highlights of the site? Those aspects about which you're most proud. Yeah, I I love the website. We had it's just a testament again about the skills of the the team members that I've come on that have organically grown, and I don't really recruit anyone. They somehow just show up on the team and they're building things. It's so awesome to see. Like if you told me, if you asked me how many people on your team, I frankly couldn't tell you. They're just in this virtual space working on different things. It's their teams and there's teams of teams. 
But this website, if you go on it, has three different sections, and it kind of plays off of our name, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. So we have an academic site, which is more um, uh, more for people in academia, doing education, life. Those are more about wellness. I have a How I Work Smarter series that was super popular uh, that was based off of, I believe, Life Hacks website about how productive people get things done. And then emergency medicine, so academic life in emergency medicine is all the clinical content. And so I divide them up somewhat and you can search through them. And within each, there are different series that different people run because they love them. And it's just a joy to watch it because now I've come to this point where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was getting published today. You know, there's this a lot of editorial content. People take ownership of their own stuff, which is wonderful to see. Yeah, I can tell that you have read a lot on people management and team dynamics. Do you want to tell us about a book or tell us about a pearl that you always keep at the forefront when you're leading your teams? Oh, there's so many. Uh, One skill that I would recommend anyone who is starting to lead teams is this idea of radical candor. I think Kim Scott or something idea of difficult conversations. And I, as an introvert who is non-confrontational, just I shudder at that thought (laughs) all the time. And I still do a little bit, but I know it's good for me. And, you know, as as a prime example, we had a team member who was our the rock of our technology. So he custom coded everything. He was amazing, but there were a lot of interpersonal run-ins and conflicts and opinions. And he essentially held our site hostage because if he just didn't want to do it, he didn't want to do it. Uh, and I, I just didn't want to be confrontational. I was like, you know what? Go and take a vacation for a while. We're going to work our way around this for a little bit. And he'd come back. And sometimes he would help us out. Sometimes we've just figured out a, a long way around. And you know, this is not a good use of all of our time. And we finally came to the point where he was so frustrated. Um, he kind of forced the difficult conversation. And I said, listen, this, is, this isn't working out. I think you your skills could be applied to different things. Uh, that more match your mindset and where your mind, where you think technology should be going, and and we kind of parted ways. But I wish I'd done that, you know, four years earlier. Frankly, we could have saved so much hurt and inefficiencies uh, going through that. So, I don't know if you've come upon that on your teams, but Radical Candor with Kim Scott that, that was a great book. I really appreciate you sharing that, and it coincides with what I wanted to ask about major learning lessons and kerfuffles that you've experienced along the way. Um, Any other sort of major like defining moments where you're like, whoa, this is a growth point for me as a leader. And this is hard. Well, but that was probably the the hardest lesson for me. Uh, But one realization that I came to, which I didn't realize that I was doing this, which was I was pretty much in my mid-career when I started Alium. And the people that tended to join my team were senior residents, really, really junior faculty. And this was during a time where it was very much, and it still is academia, a permission-based culture. And you put in your time before you can get to a spot where you can actually make a difference. You got to put in committee work for four years before you can get to be committee chair. And I'm clear if you're going to make the objectives because people on top of you would then dictate that. There's a lot of this chain of command. And 
And I think today's learners and today's educators and leaders don't have the patience for that. Things are so different. The pace is so different. And, you know, they're getting frustrated. And I ultimately, I think, have evolved to become a bit of a sandbox where, hey, you're you're, you're doing really interesting work. Or you have really interesting ideas. Why don't we put the full weight of our organization and our resources to realize what you're trying to do? And so, and I am always shocked by what comes out of it. And one prime example actually was, you know, when COVID started, think about it, what all people's, the seniors, seniors in colleges, senior residents who are graduating, they lost their opportunity, their moment of celebrating uh, a completion of a particular training period. And especially in emergency medicine, where gosh, they're at the front lines of COVID, they couldn't celebrate their graduation. And so, you know, we kind of feel a little bit like superheroes. It's kind of nerdy, but we basically put out a bat signal in our organization and says, listen, who wants to create a graduation virtually for the whole country of emergency medicine graduation residents? And and my team is crazy enough. And they said, well, yeah, we could do it. How much time do we have? I said, you got two weeks. They're like two weeks. And I, you know, I, testament to them. I don't know how they did this, but they had Anthony Fauci making little cameos. We had a couple of actors, actresses with keynotes, which I think Esther Chu was on your podcast. She was an amazing keynote. We had a musician playing interludes. It was an insane Zoom event that ran live and all the a testament to them. You just, my, my lesson point in this long-winded story is that, you know, tr- trust everyone on your team. Uh, you don't have to only defer decisions to the more senior people. Ideas are everywhere. Time for another book. What? Oh, man. I want to also point out, I don't, your audience can't see this, but I would like to brag about the bookshelf on the back of my video. After I saw Amanda Gorman and her interviews, did you notice her bookshelves were color-coded? Ta-da! Mm-hmm. I have color-coded sections. Anyway, th- it's the little things that bring me joy. All right, another book. There is a book called Flash Foresight. Um, this is actually proposed to me by one of the chief residents from the Chief Resident Incubator, and it's by Daniel Burris. And the idea is, you know, we're in this innovation space, and I think everyone's in the innovation space, really trying to create new solutions to current problems. It's the idea of what can you forecast so that you can kind of skate to the puck. And, you know, if I had a crystal ball, of course, you know, I'd be a trazillionaire. But the idea behind this is more method- methodologically uh, breaking down things that are hard trends and soft trends. So hard trends are like technology is not going away. Server, server space will be cheaper. People will be more interconnected. You know, and there's a whole list of eight technological trends in there that are hard trends. And with that, then how do you bring what you're working on kind of fit that kind of anticipating where this will go? And it's a really fascinating book. I'm not doing it justice, but it's well worth the read to figure out, hey, what are you doing? And, and it's really helped guide what we're doing with our Alien organization. When you decided to break from the standard walls of academic emergency medicine and go out and build Alien, did you ever have any fear? I'm terrified right now. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, absolutely. But 
But at the point where I kind of dropped everything and started Alium, I frankly kind of didn't have much to lose at that point. I didn't have any titles to prove. Uh, People are like, you're crazy to drop all those titles and not do the traditional path. And at that point, I've kind of already set everyone's expectations very low, very, very low. And so I felt comforted by that fact. But yeah, there's always terror that things aren't going to work out, especially now that it's built up some steam and an audience and a trust network. I don't want to break that trust amongst our audience. And so I'm always afraid of like, is this the right thing to do for our image, our quote unquote brand? Yeah. And I think that the fear is growing stronger. But, you know, a lot of things in emergency medicine, we we deal with chaos and fear and navigating in that uncertainty. And I think that's kind of why there's so many emergency physicians in this blogging, ambiguous uh, space. As, and you, as a testament, you're in this podcasting world dominating. So kudos to you. So relatedly, um, as you were building Ilium, and Ilium has proven success, it's a go-to. I love the P cards. I, you know, have these cards for rapid sequence intubation reminder, et cetera, et cetera. They're fantastic. And, you know, I can see some people, some organizations seeing this as a threat Have you ever had some of the traditional emergency medicine or other medical organizations say, hey, stay in your lane, or hey, what are you doing, or what is your financial model, or question you that because you were daring to create, innovate, and do it differently? Uh, Let me give you the the spoiler alert, which is at the end, which is, we all get along fine now. (laughs) Is that enough of an answer? Um, you know, like anything that the new kid on the block, the crazy new kid on the block is always going to have some obstacles to overcome. But I think through perseverance and showing little prototypes, you can even imagine the, you know, Christian's model of, uh, say, innovate, uh, the, what is it, the curve of innovative disruption. And the idea is that there is this mainstream group. So let's say journals, national organizations, textbooks. They are the mainstream of how information and education is delivered to the learner. That's the tradition. But then you have these little disruptors that are, you know, they look less professional. They look cheaper in design. But you know what? They cater to what the learners actually value. So, hey, it's free. It doesn't cost $150 of a textbook. Hey, you can search it on Google and find it immediately for point of care learning. Hey, you don't have to go and fly to X, Y, and Z cities to go to a conference. You just search for it. And over time, this community um, of, of online bloggers and podcasters really kind of came to be a force in emergency medicine, at least as a field. And, and I think it was hard for organizations, national organizations, to kind of ignore us. And so now we, we do a lot of team-ups. And it's kind of cool to see in that they sponsor a lot of the products that we work on We used to be the podcasting voice for our national organization, American College of Emergency Physicians, and their quality improvement work. So there was a lot of back and forth, and it's nice to be at the grown-up table and be able to kind of introduce some ideas to them and and back and forth. It's very much so a dialogue now that, that we work on education together. It's really kind of cool to see. Yeah. Threaded through our conversation today um, is your voice. So... Michelle, when did you first realize you had a voice? And when did you first start using this voice? Uh, do we, we uh, really have a voice? Yeah, I think, 
I realized it on a very small scale right when I finished residency. Actually, you know, before this idea of podcasts and 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 blogging, I I somehow I don't know, but I got a column in the American College of Emergency Physicians newsletter. It's called ASEP. I think it was called ASEP News, and now it's called ASEP Now. And they said, "Hey, why don't you start a column called Tricks of the Trade in Emergency Medicine? How to fix things and and kind of life hacks for problems in the emergency department." And I said, "You want me?" And I had this whole imposter imposter syndrome moment over the course of a month or two. Me? Are you sure? Are you sure you want me? I just got a residency, and you know. And finally, people just kicked me and said, "You need to do it." And I'm like, "Okay, I will do it." And you know, after a couple of columns, I. I noticed that I got a lot of great feedback from people. People read these little newsletters that go out for free. And I was like, wow, uh, what I say matters. So I was like, it just kind of blew my mind that I could reach so many people through a modality. And, and that's always been stuck in the back of my mind and something that I've always tried to figure out. How do we improve and make that voice more clear and accessible? And over a couple of years, I then realized no one really remembers that trick unless it happens to be in that month's newsletter. And there's no kind of archival ability. And that's why I love blogging so much. You just search for it and boom, it just pops right back up. And so I've always been trying to fine tune this idea of how do you make sure your voice is sustained and and be okay with the message changing as well. Um, and I have, you know, I have a lot of different interests and I hope to kind of use this voice and this trust to kind of say what I want to say in the long term. Yeah. A phrase that's well known in medical education is deliberate practice. And I know you're familiar with, we'll introduce the audience to the phrase deliberate rest. And I bring this up uh, because behind your right shoulder is a book called Rest. Um, and the author actually lives in uh, Palo Alto. Um, yeah. I've read his book twice. Um, how do you make sure you deliberately rest? What do you do? Resting is at the core of success. That's how I feel. And emergency medicine is such, such a stressful gig uh, that I think of Newton's third law. For every action, there needs to be an equal and opposite reaction. So the, the degree of stress that's up here needs to be combated by equal degree of rest. And I think successful people are, are able to balance those two really well. And rest doesn't mean, you know, you're just passed out sleeping all the time. But rest, like resting the mind, not thinking about medicine, not thinking about alium, and, and more just like, you know, filling your well of what what brings you joy. And, you know, I was sharing with you, I have all of a sudden deep dived into the idea of coffee bean roasting on my own. And I just I just love it so much. And that that brings me great joy. Um, I also do a lot of uh, volunteer expedition medicine on cruise ships. And so I'll go travel um, on their dime and give a little bit of, you know, medical help on the side as we go on these trips. So, you know, I really do try to balance my, my stress work life and this deliberate rest life. Where do you think reading and books fall? Oh, Is that deliberate practice or deliberate rest? It's rest. Yeah, absolutely under, under rest. I, I mean, I, I don't read. I used to read about a book a week, maybe about four or five years ago. But I've come to this point where it's plateaued in terms of the new messages that are coming out. There are kind of a lot of recurring themes. 
Uh, and so now I'm I'm working on just because it brings me joy, just learning different software platforms like Google Data Studio is my newest thing I'm trying to learn. It's a free platform that show that allows you to design how you want analytic data to report, and they can import in a lot of different data sources. It's just it's beautiful, and I love working on it. Yeah. What can audience members look forward to regarding Alium? Uh, our newest thing right now is the idea of, you know how I told you initially we catered to the learners. Next, we kind of cater to communities. And I think right now our third tier, uh, which is still a very much a work in progress, is catering to entities and organizations. So what are pain points that, for instance, residency directors have? And one pain point that they have is that they're allowed to award residency conference credit to their learners async for asynchronous learning. So 20% of the conference time, they don't have to, you know, drive into work after a shift and or drive in to conference after a shift to listen to five hours of someone at the podium talking. They're allowed to use 20% of that just learning online stuff. But the biggest hurdle was, well, how do you know it's valuable? How do you know it's worthwhile? How do you know it's safe to practice that? And so we kind of developed this learning management platform or learning management ecosystem, as you would like, as I like to call it, where learners, we, we created a series where we have eight faculty members peer review all the blogs and podcasts for that year on different systems and give them certain grades based on our uh, scoring instrument and say, listen, these are the seven that are approved instructional resources. This is our AIR series, A-I-R. And, and then now all the residency programs, they, they point them to our site, say, read these seven articles. We create custom quizzes uh, with our own question writers. And then we have these digital badges that are awarded that then residency directors can download at the end of the year and submit for credentialing. And, is, and we try to streamline and make this as easy for, as, as possible because what single residency program has time to do all this? No one, but all residency programs can benefit from it. So we're now starting to look at systems and organizations, clerkships, and residency programs. Yeah. For listeners that are inspired by you and know you, the you inspire lots and lots and lots of people in many, oh, many out. communities. It's huge. Get out. Uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> what would you recommend to them if they want to build the next alium or if they want to start taking medical education outside the traditional structured walls? One, I would talk to people who've done it. I mean, this is not an easy road. And the way we built it, frankly, it's not going to work if you did it right now. Uh, I was in such a vacuum where I think it was me, Life in the Fast Lane, which is another group, and EM Crit, which is another critical care website. It was just the three of us just hanging out, writing blogs. And now they're, it peaked at about, I think, 208 sites. And right now it's about 120. It's, you know, right now you are joining a space that is fairly saturated. So kind of talk about where, where the holes, where the needs still are. The idea of, oh, here's another book, Blue Ocean Strategy. I forget the author. I think it's Chan. But the idea is we're in a red ocean right now. It's very saturated. It's bloody. There's people trying to get, you know, the attention of this select community how can you find some blue ocean space that really has gone untouched, is pristine, but there's still a need for it? So I would do a little bit of just talk with people. Feel free to reach out to me. 
and and I'm happy to chat with you. Yeah. Any other pearls? Yeah. And like I said before, ideas are everywhere. Don't be afraid to ask the most junior person on your team for ideas because you know what? That may be the best one. The Risa Wrap-Up. Well, if you couldn't tell, I loved this conversation. And I loved the ease of integration of all the different books and different books that have inspired Michelle. In the show notes, I'll give you a listing of those books. And, you know, take a read. Think about them. Think about how you lead. Think about how you learn. Think about how you manage people. And be inspired by people that are building enterprises, empires, education platforms, such as Dr. Michelle Lynn. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.